me to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Before I get into the content of uh, our lesson tonight, I want us to go back to uh, overhead class 101, and I just want to show you some information on the overhead that may help you put what we're looking at into a context that will aid your understanding of it. This particular overhead talks about the historical setting of Revelation. You will notice this line gives to us the dates in the first century that relate to certain events in the church. Here, of course, you have the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ in approximately 30 A.D. It talks about the uh, evangelization of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, those chapters in the book of Acts. Here is the ministry of the Apostle Paul as it begins. Um, and here we have the local churches in Asia and so on. This talks about the opposition to Christians that increased. And you find here a list of the Roman emperors. And down at the very bottom, I think it's still on there, although a little bit of out of focus because of the angle we're doing this with, you see John's ministry. He was a leader of the Jerusalem church. And exactly when he made his move out of Jerusalem, we don't know. But obviously he did leave, and his ministry was focused on Asia Minor in the last part of his life. And so Paul was killed about right here. John lived on until about 100 A.D. and had the longest ministry of any of the apostles. The next overhead I want to show you is an outline of the book of the Revelation. I can't quite get all of this on there, so I'm going to start over here on this side, because that's where we're really dealing tonight. You will see this phrase, the things which are. You remember in chapter 1 there are those phrases, the things which you've seen, the things which are, the things which shall be. The things that you've seen, as chapter 1, the appearance of Christ, to John on the Isle of Patmos. The things which are describe the first three chapters of the book, the messages to the seven churches, and that's where we're studying right now. And then the things which shall be hereafter begin in chapter 4 when John is told, come up here. And then he has this great vision laid out before him of heaven and then the judgment of God upon the Christ-rejecting earth. And all this culminates with Christ's second coming and then the new heavens <clears throat> and the new earth. Now we'll be pulling that overhead out again as we work through the book, but I'm going to give you another view of just the early chapters, chapters 1 to 5, which form something of an introduction to the book of the Revelation. Chapter 1, again, we have the vision with Christ in the midst of the churches, and then chapters 2 and 3 the letters to the seven churches, which are listed here. You will notice that the content to the churches is listed this way. There is a warning of complete extinction, 
Jesus warns the church, I'll remove your lampstand, to Ephesus and to Laodicea, the first and the last of the letters. The second and the sixth, there is unqualified praise. There is no word of condemnation or correction to those churches. And then three, four, and five in the middle, there is a mixture of good and bad. I think you have in your hands an outline that we're going to be using not only tonight, but also the next two times that we talk about Revelation. I'm hoping that you will keep this with you, although we'll try to have extra copies each Sunday night, because we want to be filling this in and also using the back of the page. Let me throw this up here once more, too, just give you, giving you a geographical setting for the churches that we're now going to talk about. The first letter is written to Ephesus, the second to Smyrna. And you'll notice that the route of the, the Lord's dictation goes north and then loops back south. It's sort of a circuit there. He is dictating to John here on the Isle of Patmos, which is off the coast of Asia Minor, about 25 miles. This part of the world has been in the news the last few days because it was here in the Aegean Sea that we were having the joint exercise under NATO with the Turkish Navy, and uh, one of our uh, ships fired missiles at a destroyer of the Turkish Navy. And you remember it killed some men, and there were others who were taken to a hospital, and the hospital was in the city of Izmir, which is the city of Smyrna. So it's one of those churches that receives a letter. Its modern name, though, is Izmir. <clears throat> I believe this is the form that you have. You need not wait, by the way, till the Sunday nights when we talk about the churches to fill this out. If you'd like to do some Bible study on your own, I would encourage you to do so. And to work your way through these two chapters and write in here the verses that are appropriate to each of these titles. Here we have the names of the seven churches, and here the description of Christ, the commendation, the condemnation, the correction, and the challenge that is given to each of the churches. The, the letters basically follow the same format, although there is no commendation, I'll just give you a little hint, to the church at Sardis or the church at Laodicea. So those will be blank. You won't find any verses where commendation is given to those two churches. It's all negative. There are two churches that don't receive condemnation, and they are Smyrna and Philadelphia. So you won't find any verses to put in there. Other than that, you should have some verses in each of those squares, and I'll just give you the hint. Tonight we're going to be looking at something about these seven churches and the description of Christ. We find the first description of Christ in 2.1, the second in 2.8, the third in 2.12, the fourth in 2.18, the fifth in 3.1, the first part of the verse, 1a, the sixth in chapter 3, verse 7, and the final one in chapter 3, verse 14. So what I would encourage you to do on your own is simply go through the chart and find out which verses relate to each of these topics. 
and uh, that way you'll be well ahead in our study because we'll not be going through this chart just exactly as you see it here, but it will serve as our guide to keep us on track. Let's talk first about the church at Ephesus, and you can see that it is the first seven verses of chapter 2 where the Lord Jesus says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And that's as far as I'm going to read tonight. I want us to think about the church at Ephesus, and you may want to simply turn this sheet that you have now over and write some things down on the back of it about each of these seven cities where the churches are located. I'm going to say more than you're going to have time to write, but uh, just some thoughts that you may want to remember would be good to record. Ephesus is the most important of the seven cities that are addressed. It was a commercial center located on the Keister River. There were three roads which terminated there, including one that came all the way from the Euphrates River. Now, our map doesn't uh, go that far, but here the city of Ephesus was a port city, a port city in the sense that it had this magnificent river that flowed into it, and there were roads from all over Asia Minor that came to the city of Ephesus. And so it became quite a commercial center. By the way, today the ruins of the city of Ephesus are miles from the ocean because through the centuries, silt has uh, caused the harbor that used to be there to be entirely filled in. Ephesus was also a religious center. It was noted for the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, if you have a VCR in your home, you may want to go to the Ramsey County Library and find there a VCR that they have, or a tape rather, a cassette tape, on the seven wonders of the ancient world. It'll take you about an hour to see it. It is a fabulous um, hour-long presentation of these seven wonders, uh, only one of which is still around. Does anybody know what it is? The what? The pyramids. That's right, the pyramids. Uh, the others have all been destroyed through the centuries. But one of the things they talk about in that videotape is the Temple of Diana. It was 418 feet long and 239 feet wide and had 130 columns to it. Now, this is before the day of mass manufacturing. Uh, these were hand-hewn, 130 of these columns, and each of the columns was 60 feet high. Imagine that. Six stories high. This temple was built on marshy land, and therefore they made an artificial foundation that was made out of skins and charcoal layered. The purpose of that was to protect this magnificent temple to their goddess against earthquakes, which are still very common in Turkey. Some of the worst earthquakes that happen in the world happen over there. And so to try to protect this temple that they were erecting, they laid down layers of charcoal and skins in order to build a foundation. And on that, then, they put the marble and erected this magnificent structure. Inside the temple, there were housed crude and lewd images to the goddess of uh, fertility, which is what uh, Diana or Artemis stood for. 
Ephesus is also noted as a center of black magic, that is, of occultic kinds of activities. And we see evidence of that in the book of Acts. It was also a cultural center. There was a museum that was known all over the world at that time. And one of the things they had in it was a representation of Alexander the Great. So much for the city of Ephesus. We'll come back to Christ's appearance uh, and address to them in just a moment. Let's talk about the city of Smyrna. Smyrna is located about 40 miles to the north, northwest of Ephesus. It was a rival city of Ephesus. It had a population, it is estimated, of 200,000 in that day, including many Jews. It came to be one of the few planned cities of the ancient world. That's because the original city was destroyed by a massive earthquake and then uh, they planned the city as it was rebuilt and reconstructed. So it was one of the few like that. It had an even more excellent harbor than Ephesus did. It was famous for its trade and especially its trade of myrrh, which is a bitter uh, resin, a bitter gum kind of resin from shrubby trees that are found in Yemen and in Africa. Uh, the myrrh was one of its principal exports. And you can see in its name Smyrna that it got its name from this export of myrrh. It boasted of a large stadium and a library and a public theater, which was the largest in all of Asia. And when I say Asia, I don't mean China and India, that kind of Asia. I'm talking about this Asia, which was uh, the, the name for it in the Roman world. It's now called Turkey, the largest theater in that whole area. It was among the first city to worship the Roman emperor as deity. In fact, Smyrna was famous for a temple that was in honor of Tiberius Caesar, which was constructed in 26 AD. They entered into a contest with several other cities and won the honors for that. And as I've already suggested to you, Smyrna uh, is today called Izmir, Turkey. Perhaps Smyrna is best known in church history besides this letter for one of its pastors, a man who was one of the early church fathers, as he was called, an elderly man who was martyred, whose name was Polycarp. Uh, a godly man, he was arrested without making any attempt to flee. Uh, in fact, it is said that he offered food and drink to his captors and asked permission to retire for prayer, which he did for a couple of hours, and then they drove into the city with him. The officer who was in charge urged him to recant of his worship of Christ. You see, he was to worship Caesar as God, and he refused to do that. What harm can it do, the man asked him, to sacrifice to the emperor? Yet Polycarp refused. On arrival, he was roughly pushed out of the carriage and brought before the proconsul in the amphitheater, which we just talked about, who addressed him this way, have respect to your old age, swear by the genius of Caesar. And again, he said, swear, that is to Caesar, that he's God, and I will release you 
revile Christ? Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul persisted, Swear by the genius of Caesar, I have wild beasts if you will not change your mind. I'll throw you to them. Polycarp said, Bring them on. The proconsul said, As you despise the beasts, unless you change your mind, I'll make you to be destroyed by fire. Polycarp stood his ground. Jews and Gentiles who were infuriated around him gathered wood for the pile. Polycarp stood by his stake, asking not to be fastened to it. And he prayed, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of thee, and he said, I thank thee that thou hast thought me worthy this day and this hour to share of thy Christ among the number of thy witnesses. And then the fire was kindled, and as the fire, as the wind rather drove the flames away from him, one of the soldiers uh, put forth a sword and killed Polycarp for his faith. Well, all of that happened in the city of Smyrna. And so in the, the early church, this was a place of much suffering. And again, its name being related to myrrh, which was part of the embalming process of some of the peoples of that day, uh, all of that speaks of suffering. Let's go on to the city of Pergamum. Uh, one writer at that time said it was by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Pergamum was built on a high cone-shaped hill that jutted a thousand feet into the air. The name Pergamum means citadel, and that's what it looked like as you approached it. It was 15 miles inland, and so it was not a transportation center, but it was the, the uh, capital of the province of Asia, and therefore it was an administrative center. It was famous for its library. It is said that it had 200,000 parchment scrolls in its library. Imagine that. Some public libraries today are not that large. But they had 200,000 parchment scrolls. And in fact, parchment was created here in this city of Pergamum. Parchment, by the way, was writing material that was made from animal skins. There were many temples in the city of Pergamum. One of them was to Asclepius, who is the god of healing to the pagans. And he was worshipped in his temple by uh, living serpents being bowed to. The city was also famous for an altar at the very zenith of its, of its hill that was to the god Zeus. It was 90 feet square and 40 feet high and stood at the very pinnacle of the city and was to the, the leader of the Greek pantheon, Zeus. One of the famous physicians in the ancient world was born and studied medicine here in the city of Pergamum, and I note him because his name was Galen. <laughs> Pergamum was the center of Caesar worship, and like some of the other cities, an annual declaration of loyalty was evidenced by worship of Caesar, and it was required of all the citizens of the city to do that, to prove that they were loyal. Now let's move ahead to Thyatira, and we're going to come back now and relate Christ to each of these churches. But I want to just give you a picture of what the, the cities are like. 
Thyatira was the smallest of all of the seven cities addressed and the least important of them. And yet it is interesting that it received the longest of the letters. It's also the letter that is the most difficult to understand. So little is left from that city that some of the phrases and words and ideas that are in the letter are hard to understand. We don't have archaeological evidence telling us what was meant by some of the things Jesus said to the city of Thyatira. It was a commercial center that was located between two major valleys. There were many trade unions in Thyatira. Uh, and they included wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, uh, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. It is interesting that Thyatira was the home of a lady who was the first woman saved in Europe. Can anybody give me her name? Lydia. Lydia, who was a seller of purple dye and cloth. So she was undoubtedly uh, a merchant and a member of one of these gills that I've just mentioned. Thyatira especially worshipped Apollos, the sun god. It appears that there was a local cult in that city that worshipped another smaller, less important god by the name of Apollos. And uh, they combined these two religions so that these two Apolloses were called the sons of Zeus. Now I point that out because Jesus identifies himself here by a particular name, and we'll come back to that. Then the city of Sardis. And now we come to chapter 3. Sardis was located at the junction of five roads. Five roads came together in this city. It was a very wealthy city. And perhaps partly because of that, its citizens were characterized by slackness. But they also it may have been a bit careless because their city was built on a hill with 1,500-foot cliffs. And so they thought themselves to be uh, absolutely impregnable. And yet history records that twice the city was captured. Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, if any of you are familiar with uh, ancient history. The religion of Sardis worshipped was focused on the worship of Sibylle a local goddess who was believed able to restore life to the dead. Now that's interesting too in light of what Jesus says to the city of Sardis, the church rather, at Sardis. And then let's move ahead to the city of Philadelphia. Uh, we're not talking about Pennsylvania. This city was at the junction of the approach to three of the provinces right here in this area, the provinces of Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And therefore, because of its position, it was called the gateway to the east this way. It was built by a man, and I'm just going to give you his name, not that it's significant, other than you'll see why. His name was Attalus II Philadelphus. And so that's where the city gets its name. Its founder was named Philadelphus. Therefore, it was called the city of brotherly love. Uh, this man was from Pergamum. And he intended for Philadelphia, this gateway to the east, to be a missionary center. Not for Christianity, which hadn't even 
come yet, or for Judaism, but for Hellenism, that is, for Greek culture. He wanted it to be the center of Greek culture and for that Greek culture then to influence all of the area around it. So Philadelphia was intended to be a missionary center long before there was Christianity. Some of you know that Philadelphia is called the missionary church. It's interesting how that relates. Philadelphia was especially vulnerable to earthquakes and was completely destroyed in 17 AD, although it was rebuilt by Tiberius Caesar. And it had many temples, including the most prominent of which was to Dionysius or to Bacchus, not to Bacchus, but to Bacchus, who was the god of wine and of drama in the Greek pantheon. In fact, his image was stamped on the coins made in that city. Drunkenness was a major problem in the city. And finally, we come to the city of Laodicea. We've made the entire circuit now. Laodicea was located at the junction of two rivers and three major roads. So again, it was a commercial center, as you might expect. Uh, it was a very wealthy city, perhaps the richest of its day. It had been destroyed in an earthquake in 60 A.D. And without the aid of the Roman government, it completely rebuilt itself by its own finances. It is noted for its banking and its manufacturing of clothing, especially from a local black wool. It was also known for literature and for science. Laodicea was recognized for medicine. It had a medical school as well as a, a places which manufactured a particular kind of medicine that they made there, an ointment that was used for ear problems and a salve that was used for the eye. Now again, if you are familiar with the letter that Jesus gave to the city, you'll see all kinds of significance in what I just told you. Laodicea was a large Jewish colony. It had over 7,000 males in addition to children and females. So it was a very large Jewish colony. But the pagans in the city worshiped Zeus. The, the, the problem with Laodicea, and again, you're going to see immediately the significance to what Jesus said. The problem that this city had was that it had no convenient water supply, <clears throat> despite the fact it was located on a couple of rivers. The water was apparently not good. And so they had to bring the water six miles from some springs and the water flowed through stone pipes that formed an aqueduct. And so the water as it left the springs was cold. But as it arrived in the city, what do you suppose it was? Lukewarm. That's right. And you may remember Jesus had something to say about the spiritual condition of the city, of the church in that city, about its lukewarmness. Now let's go back and talk about the description of Christ as he writes to these seven churches. In some of them, it's very easy to see why he described himself the way he did as he began to dictate the letter to them. In others, it's a little more difficult to see. We have said that Ephesus was the most important city, the commercial center, religious center, a cultural center. And we see Jesus describing himself in verse 1 of chapter 2 saying, these things says, he who holds 
the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. We see the Lord Jesus describing himself here as the one who is in complete authority. He says he is holding the seven stars. Now we said last week in looking at chapter 1 that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. <clears throat> and people debate as to whether those angels are the pastors of the church or whether they are literally angels that were assigned to the church. Uh, the stronger argument seems to be toward the latter because every other time the word angel is used in the book of Revelation, it's used of heavenly beings. It seems a little awkward to say, well, in this one instance, it refers to human beings. And so he has in his hands con complete control over these angels of the seven churches. And he is walking in the midst of these seven lampstands, each one representing one of the churches. And so Jesus, as he begins now to address not only the church at Ephesus, but us, wants us to know that he is the one who is in charge. All authority in the church is committed to him. That's why he is called the head of the body. Everything in the church relates to him. He is the one who is supreme and preeminent above all. That is the picture that he gives of himself as he begins his dictation. Now let's look in chapter 2 and verse 8 and see how he describes himself to the church at Smyrna. You will notice that he begins in chapter 2, verse 1 by relating back to the vision John had had in chapter 1. And he does something similar here. The city of Smyrna was famous as, um, for its worship of the Roman emperor as deity. As I told you, it was famous for a temple that it built in honor of Tiberius Caesar. Now, who is Tiberius Caesar? He's the most powerful man in the world. Notice how Jesus begins to address the people. He says, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And so he identifies himself as one who is sovereign even over such a person as Tiberius. He is over the Caesars. He is the final disposer of all matters. Why? Because he's the first and the last. As we said in chapter 1, he's A and Z, Alpha and Omega, and everything in between. He is even over the persecutors who are causing the church at Smyrna to suffer. As the first and the last, he is unchanging even though they themselves were in the, the midst of constant turmoil and change. And he says to these suffering people, to whom he has no word of uh, condemnation, he says, I am the first and the last. And he says, I was dead, and I came to life. Can you imagine the comfort that was to these suffering people? These same people who a few years later would see their pastor burned at the stake. 
to know that Jesus Christ knew them, that they, He was the one that they worshipped, and that He had died and had come to life again. Someone has pointed out that of men, we say, He lived and died. But of Christ, we say, He died and lived. The resurrection of Jesus Christ undoubtedly was a great comfort to these who were facing martyrdom. He said, I died and I am alive again. And so he addresses himself to them as the living sovereign. Now the city of Pergamum, the citadel, the city famous for its temple to Asclepius, the god of healing. Jesus says to them, chapter 2 and verse 12, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember in chapter 1, when John saw Jesus, one of the last things he describes was Jesus' mouth. And he said that out of it came a sharp two-edged sword. Not a little tiny sword. It's referring to a big sword that was used in that day. Now what John saw was literal. He, saw, he records what he saw, but it had a symbolic meaning. It meant that the word of this one was all-powerful. And so Jesus uses that part of the vision to describe himself to the church at Pergamum. We are told by secular historians that the proconsul, the chief guy in Pergamum, had what was called the power or rather the right of the sword. The right of the sword. What that meant was that he had the power to execute anyone at will. All he had to do was speak it and they were dead. And so Jesus picks up on that sword concept and he says that ultimately all authority resides with him and his word. And his word. He is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Well, that would have meant something to these people at Pergamum who knew that the guy in charge of their city had the right of the sword, but Christ is over him. Well, in verse 18, we have Christ's description of himself to the church at Thyatira, the smallest, the least important of the cities. Who worshipped two Apollos, whom they called the sons of Zeus, the chief of their, their uh, pantheon, the sons of their god? Notice how Jesus describes himself. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Again, going back to the vision of John in chapter 1. Only here in the whole book of Revelation do you find this name for Jesus, the Son of God. It is a name that John employs freely in his epistles and in the gospel but not so in the book of Revelation, only here, and it's Jesus who uses this name undoubtedly because of that particular religious quirk in the city of Pergamum, or rather the city of Thyatira, where they worship the sons of Zeus. And he says, these things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, talking about his penetration in his look his ability to see through deception. Uh, this, the, the, the church at Thyatira 
was struggling with seductive compromises that were being offered by a person who's called here in this letter, Jezebel, a woman, uh, most probably a literal woman who was in that city. Whether her name was Jezebel or not, uh, that's what Jesus calls her. Perhaps he's drawing upon Jezebel in the Old Testament who was married to Ahab and who brought terrible idolatry and compromise to the people of God in her day. And that's what this false teacher was doing in the city of Thyatira. She was bringing in compromise and she was seducing this church away from the truth. <clears throat> so Jesus says that he has eyes that penetrate through the deception. He sees what is going on and the, his feet in their description tell of his power to judge. Now let's move ahead to chapter 3, verse 1, where we have Jesus describing himself to the church at Sardis. And he uses these phrases. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So again, he refers back to the stars. And he also mentions the seven spirits of God, which again comes out of the first chapter. As we explained when we talked about that phrase then, it refers to the perfect and complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. The number seven has symbolic value, meaning that which is complete, that which is perfect. And so it seems here to revert, refer to the perfect, complete ministry of the Holy Spirit in the hands of Jesus Christ. Here was a church, as Jesus goes on to describe it, that had a name that they were alive but they were dead. In other words, all the things were in place in the exterior, but there was no life in the church. Remember who they worshipped? Sibylle. The people in this city worshipped Sibylle, who believed that she, and they believed that she was able to restore life to the dead. So Jesus seems to pick up on that thinking that's in the minds of these people converted out of paganism, and he says, you have a name, but in fact you are dead. They had completely compromised their faith. This church is the most severely denounced of all of them. Someone has said this was a perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. God forbid we should ever follow that kind of a model. They had learned to get along quite well in their culture without offending anyone. And therefore, they died. Well, we come now to the sixth church, Philadelphia, and to chapter 3, verse 7, where Jesus says, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Jesus is looking beyond Revelation 1 now as he identifies himself to this church and going all the way back to Isaiah 22. Would you just look back there a moment and let's read the 22nd verse, excuse me, 22nd verse of Isaiah 22. Isaiah's prophecy here is regarding the coming Messiah and he says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his, Messiah's, shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut 
and he shall shut, and no one shall open. So there is the allusion that Jesus is referring to, all the way back to what Isaiah had said regarding him as Messiah. He says, he who is holy, that is, he who is set apart to be Messiah, he who is true, who can be trusted, who is faithful, who's in complete control over his royal household, who has complete authority over his coming kingdom, who has the keys to control access to his kingdom. You say, well, why is all of this of note to the people in Philadelphia? Because they had apparently been excommunicated from their synagogue because of their faith in Jesus. The door was slammed shut in their faces and they were, said, they, they were told, you are no longer a part of us. You're no longer welcome here. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has the key, not the leaders of the synagogue. And I open the door and no one can shut it. When I close the door, no one can open it. He is the one who controls access to his kingdom. And that was undoubtedly a comforting word to these people who are still feeling the sting of being excommunicated from uh, their synagogues. And then, finally, the church of Laodicea and Jesus' identification to them. So verse 14, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here Jesus identifies himself by this term, amen. You know when the last time was I heard an amen in this church? I'll tell you when it was. It was at a funeral this last week in which there were about a hundred bikers sitting right here in this section from the warlords. You say, what were they doing here? I don't have time to tell you the story. But they were there. And when I finished, one of them said, amen. I turned and said, thank you, sir. That's the last time I heard amen in this church. Not that I haven't heard it before that from some of you. But this term amen, what does it mean? He probably didn't know when he said amen, but he was using a Hebrew term that means so be it. It is an acknowledgement of what is binding and valid. When you say amen at the end of a prayer, you are saying and that is bound. I put that together as a volume, as it were, and offer it to God. This, is, this validates this prayer as being mine. Amen. And we send it off. Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the trustworthy one. Quite in contrast to the church here, which was not trustworthy and which was unfaithful. He is the one who validates all of the promises of God. And notice this last title that he uses, which has no reference at all to chapter 1, where he describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Let me tell you, the Jehovah's Witnesses have a wonderful time with that phrase. They say, you see here, he's the first thing that God created. He's the beginning of the creation of God. The only problem is that's not what it means. The word beginning means that he's the source of it. It means that all of the creation of God comes back to him as the creator, and it ties together perfectly with what Paul wrote to the Colossians 
in describing Jesus there as the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one of all creation. You say, well, why did Jesus use this term? Well, it's only speculation, but Jesus, or rather Paul, used that phrase, the firstborn of all creation, when he wrote to Colossae, which was only a few miles from Laodicea. And probably that letter written to Colossae had been passed along to the church at Laodicea, and they were used to that phrase from Colossians, the firstborn of all creation. And so Jesus, in addressing them, wants to, them to know he's the same one that Paul was talking about. He's the beginning, that is, the source of all of the creation of God. Well, I'm going to stop there tonight so that we can come to the Lord's table before we go. Then we'll be on our way. But I want us to notice this before we, we close here. The same Lord Jesus Christ who identified himself with all of these descriptions and titles and who stood that day in the midst of the seven golden lampstands stands right here tonight. He is in the midst of this church as much as he was in the midst of the church at Ephesus or Sardis or any of the other of them. He is present. And when we come to his table, it is an act of memoriam. We remember what he did for us. But let us remember that he is here with us and that we are fellowshipping with him as we come to his table. We cannot see him as John saw him. But the same Lord Jesus Christ is with us tonight. And so as we partake, let's partake worshiping him and realizing that as he inspected that church, so he inspects us as a church and as individuals. And if there is, in fact, some area of our life that needs to be confessed so that we can come to the table in a worthy manner, we better do that. It's serious because he's here and he knows and he loves us and invites us to come. If you're walking in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we invite you to partake of this table with us. If you're not, please do not partake, lest you eat and drink judgment to yourself. But assuming that you are His and you're walking in obedience, we invite you to come to His table as we remember Him together. Let's bow together as we give thanks for the Savior and for these elements representing His sacrifice on our behalf. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful Son, the Son of God. We thank you that in Him we have been given life. We thank you that our life is made possible by His death. And we come this evening to remember the sacrifice we come to remember the cross. We come to remember his body, his blood. And as we partake of the bread, we do so remembering that 2,000 years ago he offered his body. And that we now as his spiritual body join our hearts in fellowship in eating this bread, remembering what Jesus did for us. Amen.